Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med min Pei, der er født i Kina, men i dag bor i USA og er amerikansk statsborger. Min Pei har skrevet nogle af de absolute hovedværker til forståelse af udviklingen i Kina gennem de sidste 50 år. Han skrev bogen om China's crony capitalism, der ligesom blev et hovedværk inden for afdækningen af, hvad det er for en form for kapitalisme, det kinesiske kommunistparti har udviklet gennem de sidste 40 år. Han skrev også bogen om China's Trap Transition, The Limits of Developmental Autocracy, som er en bog, der viser grænserne for, hvor langt den kinesiske samfundsmodel kan udvikle sig af det spor, den har lagt nu. Han er en intens kritiker af det kinesiske regime, som aldrig vil få mulighed for at vende tilbage til Kina. Han er en beundret og anerkendt forsker, som i dag er professor ved Claremont McKenna College i USA. Og så har Min Pei skrevet en ny bog, som hedder The Sentinel State, der ser ud til at blive det nye hovedværk om det overvågningssamfund, som Xi Jinping har perfektioneret gennem de senere år i Kina. Vi kender til det kinesiske systems avancerede overvågningsmekanismer, og vi kender deres brug af ansigtsgenkendelse og kunstig intelligens. Vi kender også til deres forskellige former for kontrol med de sociale medier og internettet. Men det samlede omfang, det samlede mål, og hvordan kineserne selv er blevet aktiveret i overvågningen, har jeg i hvert fald ikke læst noget om før. I den samtale, som følger her, vil Min Seng Pei fortælle om sin egen historie med Kina, udviklingen af Kinas kapitalisme, og frem for alt vil han føres ind i, hvad det er for et overvågningsapparat, som den kinesiske stat er ved at etablere. Min Seng Pei, thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. Your book, Crony Capitalism, was very instrumental for our understanding of Chinese economy. And your new book, I'm sure, will be instrumental for us in our understanding of the surveillance apparatus that we're writing a lot about, talking a lot about, without always knowing too much. I'm quite curious about your own trajectory. You were born in Shanghai, but came to study in the U.S., and today you're a very important researcher on China in the U.S. and a very important commentator. What was your trajectory from being born in China to being such an important voice in America today? Well, it all happened by chance. And of course, I was very lucky. After the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1976, uh, there was new hope for China and for people like me. At the time, I was uh, 19, the year Mao died, 1976. Then a year later, uh, Deng Xiaoping came back. And one of the first things he did was to reopen universities to applicants who could take exams and then based on their scores would be uh, admitted. So I was one of those. And then I uh, uh, met American professors who came to China in 1979. I was already in college and they liked me. They helped me in the early 80s to get a scholarship to, uh, to go to the States. So 1984, I came to the U.S. to study creative writing. But my passion was always in politics. Then 1986, I switched to political science and I went to Harvard and got my PhD there. And 
again, fortunately, I studied with great professors, including the late Sammy Huntington. And of course, uh, the rest is history. So did, were you in America in 1989 with the events at the Tiananmen Square? Yes, I was in the U.S. That event changed my life. Before 1989, frankly, I was not sure whether I would stay in the U.S. or go back to China. After 1989, there was no question. China, I could not go back to China uh, because during the uh, the protest, I testified Capitol Hill, U.S. Congress, calling for sanctions against China. I participated in demonstrations, uh, appeared in news media, wrote op-eds. So I uh, instantly became an enemy of the state. It also appears in your new book, your new and very, very good book, I should say, that how much of a significant event the the Tiananmen Square protests actually were not just for you existentially, but also for the Chinese regime. And I think I experienced it here. I was 15 years old, experienced it here in Denmark. And I thought at the time we, we saw this as part of the wave of the collapse of, of communism. But looking back, I think we, we never thought the protesters had a chance. Did they actually have a chance in your view? Well, they had half a chance. I think uh, that was because the leadership at the very top was split. When you have a leadership split, protesters had should have a better chance than usual. But unfortunately, the pro-reform leadership was purged. And the conservatives, uh, the hardliners headed by Deng Xiaoping, uh, controlled the military so they could crack down. So now go back to your question. 1989 was a pivotal moment for the regime as well. Because after 1989, based on my research for the book, uh, they began a systematic program to upgrade its surveillance apparatus, to upgrade its coercive capacity. So China's surveillance state, in a sense, was rebuilt, modernized, and significantly strengthened after 1989. And today, if you compare with 1989, the government possesses unmatched capabilities in terms of surveillance and repression. So today, something like 1989 uh, could not happen. And, and what appears in your book is that definitely the regime experienced 1989 as a threat, as if the protesters actually have half the chance. I want to, before we go to your new book, ask you one question about crony capitalism. Because in the, the crony capitalism came out in 2016, and it's a very, very good book. And in the end, you, you say that, that obviously Xi Jinping is trying to, and, and his supporters are trying to address the pathologies of Chinese crony capitalism. He came to power in 2012 and wanted to crack down on corruption. But you also said it was inconceivable that they would reform the political and economic institutions of crony capitalism because the very foundations of the CCP's monopoly of power rest there. Now, seven years later, we've seen other campaigns from, from Xi Jinping, for instance, the Common Prosperity campaign as well. How, how would you evaluate today the efforts to reform capitalism under Xi Jinping? Well, today, I think he's not reforming capitalism. He is simply bringing back a huge portion of socialism or planned economy uh, 
And uh, that is part of his agenda. If you uh, want to talk about uh, corruption, corruption today in China has been weaponized as a political tool against enemies. That's why we have 10 years of a ferocious anti-corruption campaign, and you still see uh, hundreds of government officials being prosecuted for corruption. So the natural question to ask is, obviously, uh, whether the corruption and <laughs> anti-corruption campaign has worked. Uh, based on evidence, it does not seem to have worked. And that's because, as I said in my last book, in my book, uh, China's Chronic Capitalism, that Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign has two fundamental flaws. One is that it has an explicit political agenda of purging political enemies. The other is that he has not gone after the, found, the sources of corruption, uh, which include government control of enormous economic resources, the lack of transparency in the governance process, and uh, the lack of press freedom and the lack of civil liberties. Because if you do not allow the press and civil society to monitor how the government operates, then you create this black box inside which corruption can grow. And, and speaking of, of capitalism uh, in China, I think it's always very hard for us here in Denmark to really understand the ideology of the Chinese regime on a rhetorical level. They remain loyal to, to the Maoist heritage. On a policy level, Deng Xiaoping, he made radical changes to the makeup of the Chinese economy. And we've seen new changes uh, under, under Xi Jinping. You speak both of chronic capitalism, but you all you uh, always refer to the state as a Leninist state. How should we understand the current Chinese regime ideologically? I think we should understand the current Chinese regime both ideologically and organizationally. So uh, talking about Leninism, uh, Marx was a sort of semi-academic journalist, and he was no practitioner. Uh, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, actually turned Marxism as an ideology into an operating system. And his greatest invention was to uh, invent a party that controls the state. So at every level of the state, there is a corresponding organization of the party. And the party controls the bureaucracy, the military, the courts, factories, schools, and that is a Leninist state. So the party is bigger and more powerful than the state. This is the quintessential characteristic of Leninism. So today, when you look at Russia and China, both are dictatorships, but China retains its Leninist system because the Communist Party there dominates the state. Russia is a one-man show. Putin does not have the equivalent of the former Soviet Communist Party. So Russia is not a land in the States. So in terms of ideology, uh, China today no longer uh, has, uh, in practice, a government that follows strictly the dictates of Lenin or Marx because their writings, their ideas are no longer applicable 
to today's world. So in terms of ideology, my argument is that China does have an official ideology, but it's not Marxism. Leninism is not an ideology. Leninism is an organizational manual. But China's ideology is the ideology of power. That is, it is a power-worshipping regime. Its sole purpose is to maintain power and keep it. And, and when it comes to power, after the fall of Mao, there was an understanding or a consensus that China should not return to what is sometimes referred to as great man rule. Uh, that there should always be some kind of reflexivity within the system. How important is the change that there is no term limit to Xi Jinping's reign now? How important is that in a historical perspective when it comes to understanding power in China? I think it's a fundamental change because uh, the one of the biggest lessons learned uh, by Deng Xiaoping and the survivors of Mao's tyrannical regime was that there ought to be term limits. There ought to be limit on the amount of power the top leader uh, can have. So over the 30 years before she, uh, they put into place all kinds of devices to ensure that the leader, the top leader could not serve more than 10 years and power will be distributed evenly among different factions and leaders. Uh, it worked, but it worked not because the devices they put into place uh, were effective. It worked because of accidents. That is, <laughs> after Mao, uh, uh, there was no real, uh, not a single uh, most powerful person that could destroy all the others. So in other words, there were checks and balances in the regime, not because of formal rules or norms, but because of a very fragile balance of power among powerful groups. When she came to power, that balance of power was over. So he could, and he faced much weaker rivals. And of course, he was far more skilled and ruthless than all the others. In this kind of regime, you have to remember one thing. The most ruthless person tends to win. And that is a lesson I think Xi Jinping has learned really well. And his uh, rivals were less ruthless. So what happened to them? They are now either in jail or enjoying their quiet retirement. In, in the opening part of, of the Sentinel State, you you um, you you make an analysis that's very interesting about the dilemmas of power that is uh, at at the core of of the totalitarian state. One dilemma is the determination of how much repression you need to stay in power and how to limit the repression. Another is what you call the coercive dilemma. Could you explain these dilemmas and and subsequently explain how the Chinese yes. regime has chosen to deal with them? Okay, uh, so. Let me just start with a two-part answer. We all know that dictatorships cannot survive without resort to violence. If they do not deter, coerce, repress uh, society, they will be overthrown because dictators uh, staying, uh, came to power 
uh, not through elections. So they don't have the consent of the government. So now the question is, how much repression do you need in order to stay in power? If you uh, impose too much repression, then you're going to sort of cost a lot. Repression is costly because you have to hire policemen, secret policemen, military, and these people could otherwise have been used as labor, <laughs> part of labor force. And then you have to pay them, give them equipment. So it's a very costly proposition. And on the other side, the victims, you lock them up, they cannot work, uh, you kill them, <laughs> you lose labor force. So too much repression is bad for the economy. And the regime will be poor. And if you're poor, if you're a poor regime, it's much more difficult to survive in the long run. So the first dilemma in terms of repression is how much repression you need to have in order to stay in power. The smartest way of repressing a society is not so-called repression after the fact. That is, once people are on the street, then you have to use violence to drive them off the streets. That's stupid repression. Smart repression is to monitor people, to survey people, surveil people to make sure that uh, before they can get to the street, you can intimidate them, warn them, and if necessary, arrest them. And that way you can prevent repression. Uh, sorry, you can prevent protest, a massive uh, social movements. So this is called preventive repression. And preventive repression is far more efficient than violent repression after the fact. So this is the first part of the answer. Why after Tiananmen, for example, in China, the Chinese government learned that it had to resort to preventive repression by relying on mass surveillance. So the second half is that surveillance is actually very difficult to conduct as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so how do you deal with this coercive dilemma? Because dilemma, because you have to trust a, a secret police agency to do the surveillance. If you give the secret police too much power, then the secret police can turn around against you, because a dictator. A dictator at the very top is afraid both of his people, but also of his colleagues. So if one of his colleagues is in control of a very powerful police agency, then that colleague could potentially in the future replace him. So this is the second course of dilemma. That is, how do you do surveillance both effectively and also safely? But China has found a good solution as I said in my uh, book. We've known quite a few surveillance states throughout history. And of course, some of the most famous ones, at least here in Europe and here in Denmark, East Germany is very famous, of course, because it's so close by. Soviet Union is, uh, is, is famous as, as, as well. It seems to me, reading your book, that China has actually learned some lessons from, from these surveillance states, from Soviet Union, East Germany, what to do and especially what not to do. What, 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 how do you see the primary difference between China and these historical predecessors? Yeah, great question. Several key differences. First, I think both 
the KGB of the former Soviet Union and the Stasi of East Germany employed too many people. <laughs> uh, so they were very costly. For example, Stasi uh, employed something like 91,000 secret policemen. So if the Chinese secret police, both domestic and foreign spying uh, agents, were to uh, equal to the number of East Germany Stasi, then we will we'll be talking about 8 million secret policemen. So just think about this. This is obviously impossible. Uh, KGB employed fewer, but still, uh, if China were to use the same ratio, then China would have at least something like 2 million secret policemen. So obviously, uh, East Germany and KGB employ too many people, and China does not employ that many. I think China, based on my estimate, Domestic secret police probably number no more than ten, a uh, hundred thousand people. So very small. So it's much more efficient. The other things they've learned, East Germany and the former Soviet Union, is that they gave the secret police, secret police, too much power. That is, the Stasi and the KGB combined the functions of domestic spying and external espionage. And that allows one single police agency to monopolize information and become way too powerful. So China split the function. So today in China, uh, the Ministry of Public Security is responsible for domestic political spying. And then the Ministry of State Security is responsible for external spying. So these two agencies could not be powerful. Uh, enough, uh, as powerful as the KGB or Stasi. And third is that KGB and Stasi did not have a specialized party bureaucracy to supervise them, which would again reduce the party's control over domestic spying and external spying. China created a specialized party bureaucracy called the Committee uh, for political and legal affairs. And that is a, a really remarkable uh, institutional innovation. All of a sudden, the party maintains much more tight control over the surveillance state. And that, that it's so interesting uh, that you see that there are kind of an understanding of checks and balances within the regime, that there's an understanding of no part can have too much power, that power should be distributed and that's another important concept in, in your book, which is this distributed surveillance. And there are very there are several interesting dimensions to this way of conducting surveillance. Could you explain this concept of distributed surveillance? Oh, yes. I think the concept comes from the origin of this system is the party's fear of an overly powerful secret police agency. So it distributes the function of surveillance to various actors and agencies in the Chinese system. For example, as I said, the Ministry of uh, State Security is responsible for foreign spying. But within China, if uh, a foreign NGO or foreigner such as uh, a foreign executive, a foreign teacher, a foreign student 
is suspected of engaging in anti-China activities, then the surveillance of that person belongs to the state, the Ministry of State Security. Then the Ministry of Public Security is responsible for monitoring Chinese nationals. <laughs> so they distribute even within China, they distribute the, uh, uh, the function. And then at different levels, for example, at a community level, uh, because there were so many people in China, the secret police being small cannot do the job. So they will farm out the surveillance duties to the beat cops, to the community police. And then they would also, the most of the surveillance actually on, the, on a daily basis is carried out by informers. Uh, this is no different from the Stasi or the KGB. China has probably 10 million uh, by market, so estimate at least 10 million informers working for the government. So that task is distributed as well. So and then uh, universities, factories, uh, research agencies, uh, they all perform some sort of surveillance responsibilities. So when you look at the whole system, that is the task of monitoring the people is distributed widely among different actors and organizations. So, so in order to understand the surveillance state in China, it's very important that there's a technological digital infrastructure, and then there are labor intensive efforts as well. And very often we just look here at the face recognition program, but but these two they they go together the the technological, uh, digital level and the labor intensive level, isn't that right? Oh yes, I think when you look at the Chinese system today and compared with Stasi and the KGB, uh, the Chinese system is superior in two respects. One is that it is much better organized in terms of labor-intensive organization than either the Stasi or the KGB, uh, because you know informers you have to uh, manage them, and in China informers are not just managed by the secret police; they're managed by local party organizations as well, because the secret police in China, as I said, is relatively small. Uh, so China is much better organized. But I think what China uh, uh, sort of leaves the former Soviet Union, East Germany in the dust is the technology. So it has adopted just really remarkable surveillance technology. When you put these two pieces together, labor intensive organization and advanced technology, then the system is uh, very, very effective. Uh, for example, you technology alone cannot do the job. And of, uh, organization alone can do the job, but much less efficiently. For example, if uh, in the book, I mentioned this uh, story, that is, uh, in China, access to the internet is heavily monitored. And they have a blacklist uh, of people whose online activities the police is required to keep an eye on. So in Chengdu, some 10 years ago, the monitoring system shows that somebody on the blacklist was accessing the internet in the internet cafe. 
<laughs> so, but you know, how do you find out whether that person is actually the person on the blacklist? So you have to send. Well, they in this case they send two policemen to the internet cafe to investigate to see whether that person using the internet using the computer was the person on the blacklist. It turned out it was a different person. The person borrowed the put the blacklisted individual's ID to go on the internet because uh, in China, if you go to internet cafe, the first thing you have to do is to show your ID, which has a chip in it. And the ID, uh, the uh, ID is put on a sensor, and information is gathered and transmitted to the police instantly. But in this case, obviously, you still need human intervention. So the police was sent over. And when reading your book, it, it appears that this is like an avant-garde, state-of-the-art surveillance state, very efficient, very widespread, and and and. Just from a descriptive level, it's quite impressive. So this regime almost seems invincible, or the surveillance apparatus seems invincible. What are, in your view, the weaknesses of this surveillance state and the regime's control of its citizens? Okay, well, there are several weaknesses. First of all, it's really costly. <laughs> you know, if you have uh, uh, those uh, facial recognition cameras, those uh, equipment, they're very expensive to maintain. Give me just one example. Uh, these are fiber optic cables and uh, facial recognition cameras need to be cleaned and China is a very dusty place. So you have to make, send a lot of people to clean, maintain these systems and upgrading them all the time. Uh, so that's expensive and you need to hire a lot of people. That is, at some point, of course, they will have the technology to, and AI, the use of AI to sort of a, uh, read those, uh, uh, to decipher those images. Uh, but today they still have to rely on other people to uh, watch the video cameras. So it's expensive. Second is that it does not do one thing the Communist Party des desperately wants to do. That is to predict events, information. For example, you know, uh, when we look at last year's anti-lockdown protests. It happened in that environment and uh, the government had no clue about this. So spontaneous organized, uh, spontaneously organized events can still happen in, sort of, uh, in, in this environment. And third, I think the problem with maintaining the uh, the survival of a dictatorship is that surveillance is only one part of the sort of one tool. There are other tools. For example, when you look at why China in the post-1989 era has done quite well for the Communist Party, it's not just because it had a powerful surveillance state, but also the economy was doing well. Uh, the people were relatively content. So if you go forward, and the economy does not do as well more. A lot of use are unemployed, and there's much less freedom. Uh, people are going to protest. And however powerful the surveillance state is, China is a very big country. <laughs> you are going to have leakages. You're, there are corners of society you're not going to be able to monitor. 
So I think it is not going to do the job as effectively as the party wants the civilian state to do. So I want to hear near the end, I want to just ask you two geopolitical questions because I want to enjoy the advantage that we have your expertise accessible here. Because here in Denmark, we've been discussing a lot what are the Chinese stakes in the war in Ukraine. Because on the one hand, Xi Jinping has announced this no-limit partnership with Russia. On the other hand, I think it's very clear that there are limits actually to what China is willing to do to support the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. And some are saying here, well, this war is not in the Chinese interest. Actually, China has become very rich. They've made a they've made huge economic growth for decades in the American-led global order. They need stability around the world. Others are saying, no, actually, th- this this turbulence is not too bad for China because it distracts America and takes a lot of American resources out of it. Then some are saying that behind closed door, Xi Jinping is emphasizing to Putin that he should refrain from threatening with the use of nuclear weapons. So we know that China is a powerful actor, but we find it quite hard to find out what is actually the Chinese interest in, in this war and the partnership with Russia. Could you help us here? Yeah, I think you are uh, absolutely right that the war is not in China's interest. Uh, it, but once the war happens, China has to support Putin uh, uh, for obvious reasons. First, let me explain why the war is not in China's interest. Uh, China prefers to play the so-called the long game, that the China believes time is on its side, and the war all of a sudden creates tensions that undermine China's economic interests and most importantly undermines China's relationship with Europe. China's support for Russia is one of the most important reasons why relationship between China and Europe have deteriorated rapidly in the last two years. Uh, And uh, war in Ukraine has also highlighted the issue of Taiwan, which led to an increase of military and diplomatic support for Taiwan, which hurts China as well. But China's dilemma is that once the war happens, it has to support Putin because when you look around, the US-led West is much more powerful than China. And what what kind of allies, consequential allies, does China have? Only one, and that is Putin. You cannot really count on Iran and North Korea to be helpful to China. China needs a real power, and that is Russia. So China has to stick with Russia once the war happens. Uh, right now, China is actually quite powerless. <laughs> it is a sort of a it's a, a bystander pretending to be neutral, even though it's sympathetic. Its uh, heart is in is with Putin, uh, and it wants uh, it, it wants it has to wait to see how the battlefield works out. Do you think China is, is, is having a moderating influence on Putin? Because in the beginning of the war, here in Europe, we were very scared that he would maybe start the Third World War. Maybe he'd gone crazy. Maybe he'd been too much in isolation. He was threatening with, with nuclear weapons. And there were some stories that China was, was telling Putin to, to, to refrain from threatening too much. I don't think so. I think... Uh, China knows that uh, if Putin's 
is desperate. Uh, no matter what China says, Putin is going to do what he has to do. I think what turns out to everybody, uh, to China's relief, uh, and to the frustrations of the Ukrainians and their supporters, is that the battlefield uh, has become a stalemate, uh, which means Putin does not have to do the desperate things, and China does not have to step up to either to stop either to support Putin with more aid, even military aid, or to tell him not to use nuclear weapons. One last question, which is very current, is is, uh, is China's position on the war uh, between Israel and Hamas. And of course, China has historically been supportive of the Palestinian force and and. Xi Jinping was very fast to ask for a ceasefire, and his foreign minister Wang stated that the core of the conflict is the fact that justice has not been done to the Palestinian people. But China has actually, over the last years, invested quite some diplomatic efforts and economic trade in the Middle East. But right now, we don't see China engaging diplomatically, or in in from from what I can see, assuming any kind of of, of leadership. How do you see the position and the stakes of China as regards to the war in Israel and Palestine? Yeah, uh, the interests China has in the Middle East are secondary. China's primary interests are in Asia, East Asia in particular, around its neighborhood, and then secondarily in Europe because of the economy, the economic interest. In the Middle East, uh, it's sort of a tertiary interest if not a uh, secondary tertiary interest for China. And uh, China does not have real allies. I wouldn't say Iran is an ally. Uh, so China does not have to commit real resources uh, as a result of uh, the, the nature of its interests. And the second point is China does not really have that kind of influence. The U.S. has real influence because the U.S. has been there for many, many years, China began to become involved only in the last 10, 15 years. So China does not have a lot of clout. And third, China probably believes it does uh, let the U.S. Uh, stew in its own juices in the Middle East because it's a problem for the U.S. to solve. And that's probably the world's consensus. And it's a very difficult problem. The longer the U.S. bogged down there, the better half China is. So that's why China plays mostly a rhetorical game uh, in this conflict. Uh, it sees a lot of propaganda value to be gained by highlighting the plights, uh, the plight of the Palestinians and by calling on the US to play a much more even-handed role in solving the Middle Eastern problem. So, by and large, I think this is a very significant strategic gain for China. So the, the conflict in itself is a, is a strategic gain because U.S. has so much authority invested in it. And right now... And right oh, now yes, I think it puts the U.S. Yeah, I think it puts the U.S. on the spot because uh, China knows that American allies are very hard to win over. But Global South is easier to win over. And how do you win over the Global South? 
make the global south much more sympathetic to China in the sort of the rivalry between China and the U.S. by pointing out American hypocrisy, double standards uh, in the Middle East. So this is a prog- propaganda windfall for China, and of course, Putin has benefited even more from this conflict than Xi Jinping. Well, I, I could have asked you a lot of more questions, but we've already taken up a lot of your time. Ming Xinpei, thank you so much for taking your time. It was such a privilege reading your book and talking to you. Thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you very much. Det var min samtale med Ming Xinpei. Den bog vi talte om udkommer den 13. februar, og den hedder The Sentinel State: Surveillance and the Survival of Dictatorship in China. Den her samtale var ligesom vores forrige samtaler, optaget, redigeret og produceret af vores gode ven og hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi tilbage til det amerikanske demokrati, hvor vi skal tale med en amerikansk tænker, politisk filosof, som vi har før her i Langsom Samtaler, og som jeg sætter utrolig stor pris på. Det er nemlig Daniel Allen, som er professor i politisk filosofi ved Harvard University, og har skrevet et nyt hovedværk, som hedder Justice by Means of Democracy. Tak for, at I lyttede med i den her uge. Jeg håber også, at I vil lytte med i næste uge. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.